Always get a kick when you see on TV like people flying back in the 60s because people get like dressed up and the women would be like in gloves and guys would be in their suits and all this kind of stuff. And if you're flowing any today, you know that's not the way it is anymore, man. You got guys taking their shoes off from the seat next to you. You're all packed in there. There's like goats and chickens on the plane. I mean, everything's going on. Uh, the thing that kind of always kind of... Uh, I always wondered about when I'd fly for many, many years is what is it like in first class? You know, you, you, you walk by in some airline, air, when you get on the airplane, you walk past these guys and they all look just a little bit happier, don't they? They got bigger seats, you know, people are you know, calling them by name, you know, real silverware, like, you know what, they're not going to take over the plane or something. Uh, they get newspapers and all this. It's a, it's a pretty cush deal, and you look at them now, they got them when you fly in the international, you lay down on a bed and you rest on a, a pillow of happiness with big screen TVs and all this kind of stuff. My daughter flew on a, a Dubai Airlines or something over to, uh, to somewhere, like the Philippines or someplace, and they had like, her, her little thing turned into a room even on her plane. And I thought of that, and I thought, you know, what a great analogy that really is to the Christian life. Uh, sometimes we can fly the Christian life coach, or we can do it first class. In other words, if we live according to what God's plan is, according to his purposes, uh, in, a, in obedience to what he says, by his grace, by his spirit, and, and in accordance with the truth of God's word, life is uh, a little better, isn't it? A lot better, actually. I'm not saying it doesn't have problems. You understand that? But even in the problems, you have a peace that passes comprehension, right? You have the ability, even in poverty, to feel rich. You have, the, uh, the, you have just the knowing, the, the understanding that we have this great God who did so much on our behalf and who loves us so much that he sent his son who saved us from the penalty of hell. Think about that. I mean, we, in, our, in our best hell theology, we can't picture how bad hell really is, right? And But he, through no merit of our own, reached down and rescued us out of that by sending his son, his only son, right, Christ, to die on behalf of us and to not only just save us from that, but then take us and give us an inheritance. Check that out, right? No longer are you in the worst part, the worst thing that you can imagine over here, but now it's, you can't even imagine how great it is. Eye has not seen, right? The ear hasn't heard what God has prepared. And along the pathway, he, he doesn't just leave us alone while we're waiting to get to our eternal address. He, he sends his spirit, right? Jesus says, I had to go away so that the spirit may come right? Who indwells us. Check that out. God himself is indwelling us so that we might be able to carry out what he's called us to do and have an impact on this world as salt and as light and as witnesses. In other words, he's not just saved us and waiting for us to get to that eternal address, but he's given us a, a job to do as ambassadors for Christ. And he's empowered us and directed us to carry out that job. Now, that's cool, right? I mean, give me a, yeah, is that cool or what? You got, come on. Yeah. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. It's like you got the best job ever, with the best employer ever, with the best benefits ever. But, as you and I both well know, because we know it uh, from the word of God, we know it from our own experience, it's the way of the transgressor's heart, and at times, even as believers, we fight against, kick against the goads, as it were, and sometimes don't follow God's 
beautiful and wonderful plan that he lays out for us. And when we do that, it makes our pathway here, you know, this terrestrial ball that we stand upon, more difficult, less secure. We worry, we fret, uh, we, we sin. You see, as we, as we seek to follow Christ in accordance with his word, empowered by his spirit, saved by his grace, we can tr- find our pathway through this life to be more first class than coach. Now, separate the monetary aspect of that out of there, because I don't want you to be thinking I'm talking prosperity stuff here. I'm just talking about it's a lot more comfortable journey in the end. I'm not saying easier. I'm not saying there isn't loss. I'm not saying there isn't pain. But even in those things, we can have a joy that's inexpressible, a peace that passes comprehension. Think about that. That's pretty powerful stuff. Traveling coach in our faith life is like it's having puny faith. Again, living in fear sometimes or occasionally worrying, uh, in fear of our circumstances, worrying, fretting. Uh, you arrive in heaven in the end. It's not that you're not saved, but you don't really enjoy and are as fulfilled in the trip as you could have been. First class is traveling through the Christian life with the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. Right? Again, I'm not going to worry. What can man do to me? Today we, we finish up the, the two messages on, on waging war with worry. And I hope you'll remember, uh, if you think about the Sermon on the Mount here, which is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived, that, that the Sermon on the Mount has been talking about, the, it's a manifesto for the kingdom of God, and what kingdom people look like, okay? He's been talking about how Christians are radically different from the lost world around them. We have a different character that out of that flows a, a different conduct. We look different from the world. Now, one of the times that we look the most like the world is when we worry. So Jesus says in our passage, stop worrying. You've been worrying. He says, stop it. So this morning, I want to continue. I want to help us wage war with worry so that we can enjoy peace in whatever situation that, that God allows us to be in. And we can be effective witnesses of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, through whatever thing comes our way. And so that we can enjoy uh, really the first class accommodations to heaven instead of riding in a coach section of our own making. Let's begin by reading our passage, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Jesus says, he says, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. As to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body, as to what you shall put on, is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you being anxious about clothing? Observe how the, lily of the lilies of the field grow. They do not Toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that Solomon, even in all his glory, did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For these, all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, 
and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, last week we defined our, our adversary, which is this thing called worry. And we talked about the truth that worry is not godly concern. There's a concern about the matters of, of life and world where you plan and there's a stewardship and all this kind of stuff. And even Paul had concern for the churches. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about here is a type of worry that gets the focus off of God and his plan onto self and our, and our, and our uh, comfort. And uh, that worry is, as we saw last time, sin. And then we began to look at how do we fight this, okay? We looked at our arsenal, and we talked that our arsenal really is about contentment, okay? Our best weapon is a good understanding of who God is and what God does. And so if the first thing we talked about last time was this, this fulfillment. We're going to find our fulfillment in God, right? Because he owns it all, he, he controls it all, and he provides it all. And now this morning, we're going to pick up from there after talking about the character of who God is and finding our contentment in him. And we're going to look at uh, this issue of having faith now, trust in this particular God in all the circumstances of life. Now look as we pick up here, look at what he calls the warriors at the end of verse 30. Do you see it there? My translation says, O men of little faith. Okay? Uh, what you see there is he's talking about, he says, don't worry, don't be all caught up and, and worried about these things, and where you're going to eat, what, what, what you're going to wear, all this kind of stuff. And, and, it, and it's strange that he, he ties this into faith. It's not really strange, but it might strike you as strange because he's talking about all these practical things of life, and he says, in order to combat, he just says, do you realize that that just shows that you have puny faith? And he ties this to our faith in God. By the way, that, that old man of little faith is a very, very interesting study, if you look at that. Um, it's one word in the Greek, halagapistoi, okay? One word, it's a compound word, okay? It's a compound of two things, halagas, uh, uh, which means little, small, puny, and pistos, which means faith, right? So he's saying puny faithed ones. Um, by the way, he only uses this word to address his disciples. Okay? It's not a word he's using against the, the Gentiles. He's calling them Gentiles, pagans, heathen, whatever, you know, things like that. He only uses this re with regard to his disciples when he's talking to them. And it's important because I don't want you to take old men of little faith as meaning old men of no faith. It's not the absence of faith. It's not that you don't have faith. It's not that there's nothing about you that, that exhibits faith. It's not no faith, but it's puny or small or little faith. That's very different, isn't it? Because you can have that mustard seed of faith, which we know the mustard seed of faith can have a great impact, right, according to God's word. But even with that, he says, well, let's, let's let your faith grow. That's part of the sanctification process as we progressively sanctified one of the things that's going on in our life is we are, we are growing to trust the Lord more and more. It's interesting because every time Jesus uses this word, oh, men of little faith, he uses it in the context of a lack of trust. Now, in Matthew, you'll find this used four times, okay? The first time we just now saw here, he's saying, hey, don't worry, okay? Don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your clothing, all that kind of stuff, oh, men of little faith. Let me show you the other ones just to kind of help build that context there. Turn over to Matthew chapter 8. This is after the Sermon on the Mount is finished. Verse 23. 
says, and when he got into the boat, now the context here is Jesus is, he's finished the Sermon on the Mount, he's cleansed a leper, uh, he's, he's dealt with a centurion in his faith, uh, Peter's mother-in-law has been healed, a lot of other folks have been healed, he's showing that he is a, a God, he is God, he has power over uh, the affairs of life, okay, in this case, healed diseases. He, 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 he says, he gets into the boat, and his disciples, verse 23, follow him, okay? So everybody's in the boat. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves. But he himself, that being Jesus, was asleep. And they came to him, and they awoke him and said, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. <laughs> and he said to them, Why are you so timid? And look what he says, right? You men of little faith, same word, okay? Then he arose. He rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And check out their reaction. The men marveled, saying, what kind of man is this that the winds and the sea obey him? See, what has happened is Jesus has just gone, and he's shown these amazing things. I mean, even for Peter to have his own mother-in-law healed, hey, plus or minus if you want your mother-in-law healed. I'm not saying anything about that, right? But what I'm saying is he just saw... He just saw that, that, that Jesus has some, this power to take someone who is, is infirmed and make them whole again. And now they're out on a boat and they're scared for their life and over situations. And they've got the same person in the boat with them who did that. And what's their reaction? We're okay. Jesus got in the boat. We're following him. We're gonna, if this is what he wants to happen, it's okay. I'm not going to worry about it. No, what's the reaction? They, they like almost rebuke him, right? Like, save us. Don't you, don't you realize we're perishing here? Don't you care about us? And his response isn't, you rascals. You know, his response is just, your face too small. You men of little faith. Don't you know who you got in the boat with you? I think about our own Christian walk, right? Who you got in the boat with you as you're, you're sailing on this Christian journey? It's, you've got Christ with you, the hope of glory. You've got the Spirit of God with you. You've got the Father who's the creator and the, the sustainer. And Jesus, I mean, you have all this with us on our, our journey as well. But yet when trouble comes our way and the storms and the winds begin to wait, rage, what do we do? Don't you, Lord, don't you care? I know you can do it. Why aren't you? Again, it's this understanding of who is this God? What, what, who is he? What can he do? And then how do I respond knowing that as I walk through the journey that he's allowed me to be in on this life, in this life? Okay, go, over, go forward to Matthew chapter 14. There we saw his power over nature and then rebuking them because they weren't trusting him in that situation. Matthew 14, verse 22 <clears throat> We're getting in a boat again. <laughs> Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of them to the other side. And he sent the multitudes away. Now this time they're in the boat by themselves. God's not in the boat with them in a sense, right? And after he'd sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there all alone. But in the boat, already many stadia away from the land, it was being battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. Wasn't agreeable. And in the fourth, <clears throat> excuse me, watch of the night, he came to them, Jesus, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened. And they said, it's a ghost. <laughs> and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. 
do not be afraid. Now, they're in the storm right now. We don't see them screaming, Lord, save me, and all that at this point, right? I mean, right now, they're just kind of, they're in the, they know this is good. And Jesus shows up, and he says, hey, just take courage. Don't be afraid. It's me. Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I love this about Peter. I've got to be honest with you. I mean, he's, we give him grief because he starts sinking a little bit later, but he's the only guy getting out of the boat, right? And, and Jesus says, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But what happened? Then he began to look around at the circumstances, right? It says, verse 30, but seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning to think, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand. He took hold of him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In other words, here you are, you're walking along, you're on the water. And then you look around a little bit and you, you see the wind blowing stuff around and you start getting nervous. Keep your eyes on me, not on the circumstances, right? Oh, you have little faith. Again, the power of God had him step out of the boat, go against the laws of nature, being able to walk upon water. And then he, he's not saying you don't have any faith. He's just saying your faith got distracted. You got little faith. It's not mature faith. It's puny faith. So we see God in the storm, caring and protecting. Go forward to Matthew 16, verse 5. For the fourth time we see this, this word used by our, our author, Matthew. And the disciples came to the other side and had forgotten to take bread. Okay, this is, they've just crossed the lake, okay? Jesus says to them, says, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, okay? He's talking about the, the teaching of the Pharisees, the, the, the ideology that can get into their lives and minds and theology. They begin to discuss among themselves, however, however, saying it's because we took no bread. They thought he was, he was kind of getting mad at them because they didn't bring bread along. Now, the context here is they have just fed, Jesus has just fed the 4,000. And they're going, he's mad because we didn't bring bread. Think about that for a little bit. Before that, he, he'd fed the 5,000. Now, if, if, and I, we're very distractible, I understand this. But the least of your worries, if you've seen a man take a few loaves and a few fish and turn it into a meal for four or 5,000 people, two different occasions, is did we bring enough food? Did we have the food, right? But he's using this as a teaching moment after the bread. Say, hey, beware of a certain thing that can be in the bread that you take into your life, you know, what you're chewing on in life. He says, and, and they don't get that. They're just going, you know, we're, he's, he, he, it's because we didn't bring the bread. Now he's going to be mad at us because we don't have the stuff here. We didn't prepare. We, oh, we just did support him. But Jesus, aware of this, verse 8 says, you men of little faith. I like that pistol. Why? Do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves or the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Or the seven loaves or the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning the bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? He says, guys, you're missing it. You're so caught up. And what should we eat? What should we drink? How's this all going to work? The minutiae and the details of everyday life that you're missing it. You got God here with you teaching you a very important truth and you're missing it. Let your faith grow. Quit having small faith. Quit being puny faithers. Guys, don't miss the point here. Worry is a byproduct 
of a lack of trust in God. Did you catch that? Worry, when I worry, when you worry, it is a byproduct of that I am not trusting or you are not trusting God. If we trust, we do not worry. If we worry, we are not trusting. It really is as simple as that. Some of us today, we need a, we need a faith lift, right? You know, we need, we, we, when we worry, what we're doing is we're declaring that our Heavenly Father is untrustworthy in His Word and in His promises. You see, He's told us that He's going to give us what we need, that He'll take care of us, that He is a loving Father, that He owns it all, He controls it all, He provides what we need. And when we worry, we're saying, I don't believe what you said is true. I don't believe either in your word, that your word is true and errant, uh, and that I can trust it and rely upon it. Or I don't believe in your character, that you really are good and you're going to do what you said you would do, that you're true to your promises. To say I believe in the word of God and to say that it is inerrant and true one minute and then to worry the next minute is really to speak out of both sides of our mouths. Worry shows that we are mastered by our circumstances and by our own finite perspectives rather than by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, don't take this as a beat up. You know what I mean? Oh um, man, because we all, you ever worry? He's a pastor, I bet he worries. Right, he's got, a, he's got how many mouths to feed now, 23? I mean, you got all these kids, that you, right? We, we worry, I worry at times. I'm sure you worry. I know you worry at times. But as we want to mature in our faith, we want to see our faith grow, right? We want to see those times fewer and far between. We want to be able to say, thus saith the Lord in his word. And yeah, yeah, I'll trust him. And that my God is able to do exceeding abundant beyond all I can ask or think. And that he will provide everything I need pertaining to life and godliness. That his word is true. That his character is absolutely in harmony with his word. And he has the ability to do whatever it is that's going to bring the most glory to his name and provide for me what I need to carry out my function as one who is to bring glory to his name. But I think it's a, while I, I don't want it to be a beat down, at the same time, I want myself to be rebuked in this situation because it is dishonoring to God when I worry. It is inconsistent with my theology, the times that I've worried. You understand? So it's one thing to say, yeah, I have sinned and worry is sin, but it's another thing to go, you know what? By the grace of God, I repent of that sin and I'll turn to him and I will do more uh, according to what his plan is from here on out. In other words, I want to, maybe I need to memorize things about God's sovereignty or his providence or his character and some of his promises that will help my mind to dwell on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Because we've died, right? This isn't our, our we're, we're just like moseying around down here. This is not home. That's home. And we live under his laws, his rules, so to speak. And so when I look around and my circumstances say, oh, this, this health thing makes me nervous or this money thing makes me nervous or whatever the issue is that I face in life, I know that I have a God who cares for me, who, who will not give me more than I'm able to bear. True, that's the promise of scripture, Right? who has absolutely enough power to pull me out of this situation if it is going to be too much for me to bear. 
And in the words of Job, yea, though he slay me, that I'll trust him. That's the beauty of Job, isn't it? What faith. To have so much removed in the other, I'm, you know, Lord gives, Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, I'll trust him. He took away everything but his wife, and, you know, he might have been going, you know, the wife might have been the good one to go, because she's just over there saying poor theology, you know. To find our contentment in God rather than in our circumstances. Our, our faith needs to be megalos pistoi instead of alaga pistoi. You understand? Big faith rather than little faith. Oh, what God does with a big faith. You ever notice that? Those people who just go, yeah, I'll trust him. I'll follow him wherever, whatever, you know. Guys who have gone into the mission field that during their lifetime, maybe nobody even hardly heard of them, but have inspired lives from there on. The widow who dropped her a few little mites into the temple, she never knew the story, what Jesus did with that or anything to our knowledge, right? But yeah, she's impacted people to give sacrificially for years and years and years. The Bordens, the, I mean, just all these, the Mueller's, the men of prayer, men who just said, I'm just going to trust God. And to watch how when we remove ourselves from the equation and our desires and our comforts and what we want and our name and everything being raised up to see how God can just take a man who is emptied of himself, but all that's left is a trust in God and to use that man or woman or child to impact a generation. If we're called to be ambassadors, if that's what we're left here to be doing, being witnesses, salt and light, all that kind of stuff, how much better way to do it than just have that megala faith, the big faith. Now, our faith is very, very closely tied into uh, his promise. That's point number four in your outline, our assurance, which is his promise. Verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. It's so simple, isn't it? Now this, is, this, my friends, is where rubber really hits the road, okay? Get this now. The cause of worry is seeking as a priority of life the things of this world, okay? The, causes of, the cause of contentment is seeking as a priority of life the things of God's kingdom and his righteousness. Did you catch that? When I worry, primarily what I'm doing is my priority is to seek the things of the world, okay? I may be very skilled because I grew up in the church and couching that in churchy terms and making it sound like it's a church thing, but I'm telling you, it's because I'm concerned that something's going to happen to me, a loss to me, a, a cost to me. And the cause of contentment is seeking as a priority, just what this verse says, God's kingdom and his righteousness. So Jesus says, instead of seeking all the things that the Gentiles, the pagans, the unbelievers eagerly seek, focus your attention and your hopes on the things of the Lord and he'll care for all your needs. That's what Matthew says right here, verse 33. That's what Jesus said. Now remember who we are, point A on your outline. We're the recipients of this promise, okay? Jesus is talking to his disciples, okay? There's a crowd there, they're listening in, but he's not talking to them. He's talking to those who are his own. And he says to his own, he says, seek God's kingdom, God's righteousness first. That's your priority term, right? And the rest will be taken care of. 
The kingdom of God here carries the idea that is shown earlier when Jesus was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, verse 10, in the, the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, that uh, when he talks about the kingdom of God there, that we're to seek God's rule. The kingdom of God is to have God's rule in our lives right now, okay? That's the way the kingdom of God plays out right now. It's not a, we've got a castle up on a hill somewhere and, you know, everybody's going, and the knights are going to go over to the castle. It's not that kind of thing at all, right? You understand this. When God has rule in our life, he is, he's king, his kingdom is, is pervasive through the lives of believers, that his will is being done on earth in my circumstances, in my life, as it is in heaven. See, too many people want all these things that Matthew talks about in verse 33 there, but they neglect the first part of the verse, which is seek first for his rule, for his kingdom in your life. Seek first his righteousness to be practically played out in your life through progressive sanctification. You've already got... It, in, in your justification, but it plays out practically as we live in our sanctification. People want and they beg and they need, but the whole time they're not seeking to be obedient to the sovereign rule of God in their life. And this instruction is, is one about priorities. Seek first, that's priority. I mean, it just, and this is a great time for, when you come to a verse like this, just to go, okay, I need to do a, an analysis of myself, right? What are my priorities? It is the first thing in my life I'm seeking God's kingdom. It is the first thing in my life I'm seeking his righteousness to play out. What are my priorities? What are your priorities? And when you think about that, don't give me the church answer. I remember when I was a little kid growing up in Bible Sunday school, you know, we called it back then. You know, the teacher would ask you a question, man, you could almost get it right every time by either saying the Bible or Jesus. You were almost always right. So don't give me the churchy answer, all right? What I'm saying, what are your priorities? What does your schedule show your priorities are? What does your money show your priorities are? What is your calendar? I mean, what shows, what is your priorities of life? Don't tell me that your priorities are God's kingdom and his righteousness and then head out of here and spend your whole week caring about nothing but making more money, right? Don't, don't tell me that your priorities are God's kingdom and his righteousness and then head out of here and not touch your Bible for a week. Don't tell me that your priorities are God's kingdom and his righteousness and then head out of here and gossip, cheat, your customers or steal from your employer or your employee or use filthy languages or different things like that. Don't run out here and live a whole different way and then say, you know, I'm seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. You're deceived if that's the case, right? Don't tell me that your priorities are God's kingdom and his righteousness when your schedule shows that he isn't, when your finances show that he isn't, when your lifestyle shows that he isn't. I don't want anybody to be fooling themselves. You see that great theological phrase, the proof is in the pudding? And you'll see that if you keep reading the Sermon on the Mount later when Jesus talks about trees and their fruit and knowing them by their fruit in chapter 7. The, the reality is, if you have encountered Almighty God, your direction, not your perfection, will be to show these characteristics in your life in an increasing manner over time. Did you track with me on that? Please listen to this part. Not perfection. It means you will still at times worry and you will still at times do things that are outside the characteristics of what God wants you and I to do. Unfortunately. But we will weep and we will mourn over our sin. Like the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. It'll be a different feeling. It will not glory in it. 
But the direction, folks, the, the, the change of our life, if you look back five years, you say, you know, I can see the handprint of God molding and shaping me and growing my faith so that I worry less than I did five years ago. And I'm more faithful with my finances or my calendar than I was five years ago or whatever. Seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. I know that's kind of a, a vague churchy phrase it can be, and it may be hard to kind of comprehend what he's talking about there, so let me help you if I can. To seek his kingdom and his righteousness means, number one, one of the things it means is that we're losing ourselves in obedience to the Lord. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, it's like a life verse kind of verse if you go that way. Uh, John 3.30, right? He must, John the Baptist says this, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's what I'm talking about here. Less and less David, more and more Christ. Less of what David's plans and priorities are, that all windows down, the things of this world get strangely dim and more and more Christ. Losing ourselves to obedience to the Lord. That means when I come to the passage of scripture that tells me I'm to forgive as I've been forgiven, and I look at that person who's wronged me, that I'm not hiding away and saying, you know, I'm not going to deal with this, but I want to go and interact with them, and I want to extend to them the same grace that I've been given. Things like that. That we hunger and thirst for the things of this world to come. I mean, personal holiness, integrity, God's glory in every situation. That, that was, again, you go back to the, the model prayer that's Matthew 6.10. It's on earth as it is in heaven. I want, want heaven's light to be felt in what my life is like here. Those priorities are the same ones, and those characteristics show up in my own life. It also means seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. also means seeking to win people into the kingdom, the gospel, evangelizing, that they may be saved and God may be glorified. I mean, how's that going? Right? Are you reaching out to the coworkers and your family and your neighbors and saying, you know, there's this awesome gospel. And let me tell you what God did. I was a sinner, lost and dying, no merits of my own, and through what Christ did on the cross, as you explain that, and by putting faith and trust in Christ, I have become a child of God. To talk to them about that. I mean, it's amazing to me how we who call ourselves Christians are so slow and so scared to evangelize. If we really believe the gospel is good news, I mean, wouldn't you tell somebody? Who'd Purdue play this weekend? Do you know? Oh, you don't care. You just had a kid. Right? I mean, I go to work. Everybody's on Monday morning. What's going on is people are talking about their team. Whatever their team is, man, if it won, they're talking. And they want to talk about it. They're excited because to them, that's good news. Now, how pusillanimous is that compared to the good news we have, right? But we as Christians are going into our workplaces and neighborhoods and we're just kind of going, well, I don't want to offend anybody. It's good. Don't offend anybody and don't be ugly about it and don't be bang, bang, bang on your head about it and stuff like that. But if you look at that person there, you know they don't know Christ. Do you understand what's going to happen to them if they were to die in the next heartbeat? If God and his sovereign hand didn't allow that next heartbeat to come to them, what would happen? Do you realize that? Do you think of hell as a real place? I mean, and do you realize that God has given us as ambassadors the good news to carry to these people? It's not for us to change them. We don't do that work. We bring the seed, we scatter the seed, and then it's God's business what happens from there, right? 
but we're just like holding back our seed and we're burying it in our backyards, you know? I mean, if you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, let me tell you why. One thing you'll be doing is telling others about Jesus Christ and how they can be saved and where they stand. It's hard. It's hard to open your mouth. It's hard to turn that first corner, isn't it? We were in a bed and breakfast in Ferndale, California. This old Victorian house when the day that uh, they had their baby. And uh, this guy comes in. He's dressed in 1880s attire. I mean, bowler hat, little pocket watch. And he's writing a book about how the trees speak to him. And my biggest regret was I sat there and listened to this guy and this nonsense about the Redwoods telling him stuff, getting words from the elders and all this kind of stuff. And I was, to be honest, I was a little entertained. That's wrong. And I didn't talk to him about Christ. I didn't say a thing about Christ to that guy. As a matter of fact, I'm just sitting there going, I'm going to listen to this nonsense for a while. And maybe it's funny. Maybe I'll get an illustration out of it. And then I'm going to go to my room and rest, right? I didn't even think about sharing Christ with him. Was I seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness in that deal? Because this guy, if he dies and he's going, well, I was talking to the trees and they're going to be like, God's going to be like, mm. I gave those redwoods three sets of chromosomes so they could grow big and all this kind of wild stuff. And you missed the design while you were listening to a message from them. We need to be about that. We need to be aware of it. And it doesn't come always naturally to us to, to be aware, to speak up in a situation. We need to tune our lives to that. The third thing that seeking his kingdom as righteousness means is it means, hey, I want to see God glorified before a watching world. This is where the worry thing really, I think, comes into place too. Because you know what? There is possibility that at times God is most glorified while you're in your hardship, or I'm in my hardship. I may have to suffer like a Job for God's glory. How does that change the way you look at your suffering times? You don't seek them, don't have to. How does it change the way you look at them? Is there a way that God can be glorified through what I'm going on? If he chooses not to remove me from this situation, which he could, but like Shadrach, Meshach, and Medigo, if not, We'll still give him the glory and we want his name to be lifted high. By the way, don't miss the verb in verse 33 there. The verb for seek is present and active. What that means is continually seek, actively seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus says, don't miss the promise. If you're this kind of person, one who is seeking continually as a priority of his life first, right? Then this promise is all things that you need will be added to you. You we read from Psalm 37 earlier today. Turn back over there. Let me just hit on a few verses of that because it's applicable to what we're talking about. Psalm 37 verses. These are familiar verses, okay? <clears throat> Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate righteousness or faithfulness. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. Many of us, we've known those verses for years. But just breaking it down, trusting the Lord. If I'm trusting him for all things, and I'm not, then I'm not worrying. Do good. Seek righteousness and seek his righteous his kingdom in our daily living. Dwell in the land. Cultivate faithfulness. 
Feed on his faithfulness. Remember his promises and who he is and his character. Delight yourself in the Lord. Get excited about the things that he's excited about. Want to be with his people. Have a heart for the lost. Encourage others to support the ministry of the word. And then the promise comes, right? In the middle of verse four, commit your way to the Lord. So Lord, I'll I'll follow you in your will and your direction, regardless of what it costs me in money or time or makes me an outcast at school or work or whatever. I'm going to be committed to following you. He says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. And here's the promise, right? He'll do it. It. Can I have a, is there an asterisk? Is there you know, terms and conditions? What's included in it? It. That's it. This is it. Your life, it. He will accomplish what needs to be accomplished to bring glory to his name. And in that, as you do that, you will have the most contented ride along the pathway that is possible. I'm not saying easiest. I'm saying contentous, if that's even a word. And that's really the promise of Matthew 6.33, isn't it? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and he'll do it. All these things will be added to you. He doesn't stop there. Look at letter B on your outline. The reminder of his promise. Verse 34. Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He concludes this section by saying, therefore, because all these things I've said about anxiety and worry, then do this. And he makes a command. It's imperative mood. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. It's silly and it makes no sense in light of all the things that Jesus just taught. He says, tomorrow will care for itself. Literally, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. (laughs) Every day has enough trouble of its own. Where trouble there is very interesting. It was used in its day to refer to damage done by crops, by hail. And I know this is in a rural environment, and you probably haven't seen a lot of hail damage. Some of you have maybe where you grew up. But I, was, I pastored in Kansas for 13 years, and I tell you, people in Kansas look at the sky different than you and I look at the sky. And when they see a wall cloud or something like that, they get real concerned. Because you know what they've been doing all year? Planting, sowing, you know, taking care of fertilizing, all this kind of stuff. But you know when their payday comes? Their payday comes in two weeks of the year. And that's when they can get in there with the combines and they can cut the crop and take it to the store and sell it. And if that hell comes a day before that, guess what happened to their yearly income? Be like your boss coming in and saying, well, I really appreciate the job you've done here at the accounting firm of whatever. But, you know, I'm not going to be able to pay you this year, but thanks for continuing. How long would you stick around, right? But these guys look at it and this is it. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be the hell storms that come. There are going to be the, the things that are difficult to endure. The problems that you will come in life, whether it be in the form of a, a tumor or, 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 or a, a, a hellstone or whatever, okay? Those days, there's trouble coming. That's the way it is in this world. That's a, a function of Genesis 3 in the fall. But hey, I will be with you, okay? I will not leave you or forsake you. I own everything. I control everything. I can provide everything. I love you. I care for you. I'm a true God. I don't lie. My promises are yes and amen. I will be with you. So don't worry about that because I'm going to be with you when it it happens, okay? Don't, Don't fret about tomorrow because you can't control it anyway. It's a rocking chair. There's a lot of motion, but there's nothing getting accomplished. You see? Don't worry about it. Well, the, that's the prayer, right? And the, the, and the model prayer again, give us this day our daily bread. Not, hey, I want to be able to see. We all do, right? I want to be able to see six months down the road. 
I love to know where things are going to supposedly be six months down the road. One adjustment in the housing market, one adjustment in the stock market, and boy, watch that all disappear really, really fast, folks. Every day enough issues come up. Deal with those in a way that honors God, but don't borrow from tomorrow and worry about the things that may or may not happen. God is on your side, and he will not give you more than you can bear. Sounds trite, but give God all your tomorrows. I think that was a song in the 70s when I was a kid. Most folks crucify themselves between two thieves, the regrets of yesterday. They can't seem to get past that by the grace of God sometimes. And then the fears of tomorrow. And they're just isolated there. And they end up immobilized for today. God will take care of tomorrow and your worrying does not help anything. In fact, it only hurts. It hurts because in that worrying about tomorrow, you become a, a bad testimony of your faith and you, you testify of puny faith rather than great faith. It, it hurts you because it, it robs you of your joy today as you worry about tomorrow, right? It, it, it robs you of your effectiveness today as you are immobilized by worrying about the things of tomorrow. God has promised you grace for all your tomorrows. Deuteronomy 33, 25 says, your strength will equal your days. <laughs> I like that. You see, we have a promise from God. Philippians 4, 19, I love this verse, and you know it well. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? My God will, su- will supply all your needs, not some of your needs, according to his vast storehouse of riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We know that first, but in the midst of this, you need to know that your needs are not what you define them as, probably. The context of that promise is Philippians 4.12. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The context is this. Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and, check this out, suffering need. Which is it? Is he supplying all my needs or am I suffering needs, Paul? Can can Christians be subject to hunger? Can we be subject to famine, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? You better believe it, right? Go read the end of Romans 8. In all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors, we're told there. In all these things. Haven't some of the greatest saints in the world been stripped, starved, and killed? What about Hebrews chapter 11, verses 37 38? It talks about some of these great men of faith. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, not Armani sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. How's this reconcile? These. These losses and miseries were not due to their lack of faith or unbelief, were they? Of course not. It's the faith chapter. It's all about their faith. These are men, it's just as that verse said, of whom the world is not worthy. 
So what does Jesus mean here? How do we take this context and put it all together when he says all these things in the context here, food and clothing will be added to you if you seek the kingdom of God first. I believe he means the exact same thing he meant in Luke chapter 21 when he said this, okay? Luke 21, 16. He's talking to his disciples and says, but you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish. What does that mean? You're going to deliver some to death, but they're not going to perish? It means simply this, okay? You and I, as believers redeemed by Christ, will have everything we need to do his will and to be eternally and supremely happy in him. And to glorify his name. Did you catch that? How much food and clothing is necessary? Well, I guess the question is necessary for what? Necessary to be comfortable? No, that's not what Jesus promised, that we're going to be comfortable, right? Necessary to avoid shame? No, Jesus called us to bear his shame with joy. Necessary to stay alive? No, he didn't even promise to spare his death of any kind, did he? Other than the eternal one. He promises enough so that you can trust him and do his will. So you can glorify his name. It's interesting that Philippians 4.13 follows Philippians 4.12. And it says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I just want to almost add there, even starve. <laughs> if that's what he has. You say, wow, that's not a very pretty picture. I'm not feeling real good about this sermon. Folks, there are times that I need to be brought low for my benefit. Would you agree with that? There are times I need to suffer a little bit for the cause or for the sake of Christ. Would you agree with that? There are times that I must have need and even loss so the kingdom of God can be heralded and witnessed clearly. But in whatever situation I find myself, if it's plenty or, or, or lack, God gives me exactly what I truly need for the moment and I can find contentment, fulfillment in him. I'm not describing a situation where in the middle of the worst case scenario here, you are despairing. But I'm describing one where you're rejoicing. Like Paul with the chains on his arms, writing to the Philippians from jail, facing almost certain death, right? Rejoice in the Lord always, again. I say rejoice. I rejoice for my imprisonment because many of the Praetorian Guard have got to hear about Christ now. So why worry? Doesn't do anything. Positive. Let me just recap these two messages for you in a nutshell, okay? If you really want to defeat worry, do these things, okay? Number one, focus on God. Focus on God. All right, he is faithful, he is immutable. That means he doesn't change. He cannot change, he will not change. Uh, he's, he's the owner, he has all the resources. He's not lacking, so it's not like he's standing afar going, boy, I wish I could help old, old John, but old John, I just don't have what I need to help him with. He's got the resources. And he is one who controls those resources. He's sovereign over every situation of life. And nothing comes into your life that doesn't pass through his loving hand first. And he's a loving provider. Two words there, loving and provider. He has the ability. So focus on God. And focus, secondly, on God's past faithfulness. 
I mean, that's where the halagapistoi comes in. You know, exercise your mega faith, not your puny faith. I mean, you just saw the feeding of the 4,000. Don't worry about, you know, the storm kind of thing. How many things in your life have you seen God do that's just plain awesome and wonderful? I mean, we can all list out page after page of what God has done from our salvation to the ways worked and answered prayers and done all kinds of amazing things. But we have a great capacity to turn away from a list of, a huge list of positives and begin to worry about a short list of negatives. Rehearse what God has done. That's what, that's what he taught the children of Israel to do, right? Set some stones up and every time you go by here, you remember how I brought you into this land. Number three, focus, not on, focus on God, focus on God's past faithfulness, focus on God's kingdom as a priority, okay? Seek his kingdom and his righteousness by abandoning yourself to obedience, by seeking the loss like he did, okay? By seeking him to receive glory in all things. And then you say, in my prosperity, how can he be glorified? What can I do with what he's given me in my lack? Well, how can he be glorified and how can I give glory to him? Focus on God's kingdom as a party. Number four, give him all your tomorrows. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Don't worry about tomorrow. And then number five, a final note, pray. One of the great passages on worry, he didn't address it here in this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, but if we were teaching the whole thing, you would have hit it in the, uh, the model prayer more. But I want to bring this in here. Um, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, be anxious for nothing, worry about nothing, right? But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, here's your promise, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, be anxious for nothing, put that off, and put on this prayer. A prayer where you go to God, who is the God who owns it all, controls it all, provides it all, who is the God whose promises are yes and amen. He's the one. Go to him, and in everything by prayer, that's by talking to him as our Father who is in heaven, right? And by supplication, that's letting your requests be made known with thanksgiving. Don't miss that. You ought to highlight that in Philippians 4, 6. Because in the middle of this worry time, it says with thanksgiving pray. Boy, that'll change your focus. Read a psalm once or twice, right? And you see David going, why is everybody against me? What's going on here? And then he starts to focus on who God is, his kingdom and his righteousness. And it turns his whole life, his worldview around to at the end of it, he's going, hey, I'll just I'll follow you wherever, take off with wings, you know. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with, thanks, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God. And in the end, that's really what most people are after, isn't it? A little bit of peace. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. Let me explain the peace of God to you. I can't. It surpasses all comprehension. Weren't you listening? It'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Promise from a God who can't lie. Worry is fundamentally a matter of trusting God more, uh, less and less and caring about self more and more. So we want to do the opposite of that. We want to trust God more and more and care about self less and less. Isaiah 26 verses 3 and 4 says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock.
Do you know what the middle verse of the Bible is? Psalm 118.9, just a few verses, the one verse I opened with this morning. says this, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Oliver Cromwell had an associate who was sent on some very important business once. And the night before that meeting, he couldn't get any sleep. He tossed and he turned. He was worried about the events of the tomorrow. The custom in those days was when a, when a man was an important person was traveling, the servant often would sleep in the same room so they could attend to whatever need came up. And the, matter, the master looked over at the servant and his, while he was fretting and everything and, and couldn't help but notice that the servant was just sleeping soundly, just sawing logs. And so he woke up the servant. There's a good master for you, right? Woke up the servant and he asked him, how, how do you sleep so good? Well, normally I don't have you in the room waking me up. Might be an answer, but anyway. So he woke up the servant and he asked him how he slept so well. And the servant answered this way. He said, Master, may I ask you a question or two? Master said, certainly. Did God rule the world before you were born? Absolutely he did, the master replied. And will he rule it after you're dead? Most certainly he will, the master replied. So the servant said, then master, why don't we let him rule it in the present also? The master's faith was stirred and peace was the result. And in a few minutes, both he and his servant were both sound asleep. God is in control. He is on your side. Trust him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And enjoy the peace that passes all comprehension. Amen.